Welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. My name is Courtney Small. I write about film for several publications, including ThatShelf.com, where this show is hosted, and Cinema Access, to name a few. I am also the co-host of the podcast Frameline. Today I'm joined by freelance film and television critic Carolyn Hines. Carolyn has written for several publications, including Adam Tickets, Comic Beats, Sci-Fi Wire, just to name a few. She is the co-host of the great pop culture podcast, So Here's What Happened. And she's also the co-host of the popular Twitter event, Saturday Night Sci-Fi. Carolyn is also a member of the African American Film Critics Association. And like myself, she's a big fan of the Fast and Furious franchise, so you automatically know she's good people. Carolyn, how are you doing today? <laughs> I am- Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> and how are you? Not, no, I'm doing very well, thank you. And, and one thing I left out in your bio is that you have an extensive and impressive knowledge of Asian cinema. And one of the things I want to ask you is where did that love come from? Because you wouldn't necessarily what I guess traditionally people would expect to be a huge fan of Asian cinema. No, I am not actually. Um, I fell in love with Asian cinema because of how I grew up back when my Barbados um. This is something I tell everyone. A lot of people think I'm joking, but I'm like, it really does have to belong to the fact that I'm a Beijing. Like Asian films, especially martial arts films, is very big in Barbados, especially when I was growing up in the 90s. So I always, my brother would always take us to the video store, me and my twin sister. We'd always go every Sunday um, out of every group that we selected. I, my, both, all three of us would actually select like Asian martial arts films. And I, I, I appreciate you saying that. I have a huge sense of knowledge because I think like I, like I really do need to watch way more films. Um, but I'm learning and I'm trying to watch more films um, gradually to, to, I should say, broaden my knowledge. As soon as I always think I don't know enough and haven't seen enough films. So I do appreciate you saying that. No, oh, I mean, when it comes to, to cinema, especially when you're doing film criticism stuff, there's always stuff that you need to see. But, you know, just in the conversations that I've had with you, I've always been impressed with just the breadth of knowledge that you have. And it's interesting because I know my family's background is from Barbados as well. So I have cousins that go to like the anime convention every year. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on culturally in Barbados that people don't really associate. Right. You know, they think when you're from the islands, they don't think that they have an extensive love for Asian culture or just cinema from around the world. So I'm always I'm always impressed when I, I hear you talk about cinema. And I think it's going to come in handy for our, our film discussion today, because our main film for today is the 2018 drama Burning by director Lee Chang Dong. Based on the short story Barn Burning by Haruki Murakami, the film follows Jong Su as he reconnects with a girl from his old neighborhood and finds his feelings for her becoming conflicted when she meets a mysterious man named Ben. Carolyn, do you want to kick us off with some of your initial thoughts on the film? I will start with the negative because there's way more stuff that I like about the film than I don't like. And the, for me, my biggest script for the film is the pacing. And for me, it's very slow in some parts. And there are moments where I lose track with the film and I, my attention wavers. Because the film is not counting credits. It's about two hours and 15 minutes. But even though that's standard now for a lot of films, it does, I think the pacing, because it does feel slow, makes it feel longer than that. And I remember being in the cinema of Active and want, I'm wondering, is this film three hours long? I, I swear the film was like three hours long when I came out of the cinema, but it wasn't. And, and I remember this because Burning was the very last film that I saw Active. 
and I enjoyed it immensely. But my my, my major regret with the film is the pacing. And the, the thing is, is long run times is standard for Ichan Dong films. Like his his films generally run two plus hours, and this is even films back in the early two thousands and like when he made films in like the early two thousand two thousand and two two thousand and three and like the late nineties. And that would have been rare for films back then. Most films back in that time would have been like generally an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes. But the pacing, it does, for me, drag a little bit. But I, it works with the film because, to me, it matches up with the way the characters are portrayed. In the fact, at the beginning of the film, it's kind of awkward. And that has a lot to do with how Yuan Yi plays his character, Jiang Su. Jiang Su is a very awkward character in the fact he, he seems very self-conscious and he... and you can tell that he's not comfortable in, in certain spaces when he's around certain people, um, especially people with money. And you get a sense that he's someone trying to find his way as a writer, but also as a character. And then the time, then the, it, the tension does pick up later when you get introduced to, to Ben, played by Steven Yun. And it does work. I kind of like how the pacing suits the characters. But again, for me, it does drag. And that, But I do like how the different characters are very distinct. And my favorite character in the film is Amy. And this, and she's played by um, Jung Jung So. And to me, she does a lot with the little bit that she gets. And, th- and I, this is my other second grip with the film. I wish she had been given more um, to do in the film because... The the thing with the film is it's about how her character, how Hamey interacts with these two men and like what purpose she serves in their lives. But it feels like she doesn't serve much of a purpose in her own life. She's this character who's kind of transient in the fact she's here and then she's not. But I got to give kudos to um, Jun Jun So because she does so much with the little time that she has. And to me, she was one of my favorite performances in 2018. It was her and Yelitsi Aprasio in Roma. And they gave two of the best performances. And I wish Jun Jun So had been given a lot more and recognition for her work because this was her first film. She was like a brand new actress and she does to me. She she held her own in scenes with people like Steven Yeun and Yuanin and like Yuanin is like big in South Korean cinema and like he was one he's in one of my favorite Korean dramas called Secret Love Affair and he's a, he's a very intense actor and, and that's why I, for some people if you're not familiar with his work you'll think that oh that he's not she's not playing this character right but I'm like if you've seen his other work you know that what he's doing is acting and how he portrays his character is very awkward and like that's not him at all and so for her to be able to like hold the scene like keep all of my attention on her in her scene to me that says a lot for her so I can't wait to see what she does and I think she finished another film that that filmed last year but it's not I don't think it's been released as yet their favorite part of the film is Steven Yeun like he's amazing as Ben like he's super intense he's I don't trust his ass he's very serious and I guess we'll get into that more but yeah I, I love the film it's not perfect there are some things I, I wish were done better well I will say that the first time I saw it was actually at TIFF I always say that film festivals are the best place and probably the worst place to see films because you get to see stuff from all over the world it's a great experience but then you cram so much in so by the time mm-hmm. I saw Burning, I'd seen so many films, and the pacing did drag, so it did feel long. Rewatching it again, though, I think maybe just because I knew what was happening and what to expect, the pacing didn't bother me the second time at all. I guess I was more in awe of how this story was constructed, because as you've mentioned, it takes a turn at a particular point, especially when Ben introduces, and the film that you think you're getting at the beginning is not what you get by the time you get to the end. Yes, you could cut a few scenes, but it, it still worked for me. I want to jump into Hamey first because I found her a really intriguing character. And on second viewing, her importance to the film and the world became even more apparent because the first time I thought she was a little flighty. 
right? But then I realized, well, that's because I'm seeing her through how Ben sees her. And her almost not being there for parts of it was how kind of Jung Sue sees her. So watching it this time, I was a little more aware of her character and also the commentary that this film has about how women in modern society are treated. Yep overall because there's this great scene where Jong Su is asking around for for Haimi he hasn't seen her in a while and he comes across one of her former co-workers um, I guess they are I don't even know what the term is they're, they're the type of people that work at stores to try and draw you in they're called promotional girls in the Caribbean too like where you have the girls outside of stores and they're like getting people trying to get people to come into the stores yeah the way how they do it in particular where you have the girls dancing outside with microphones and like they do choreograph dances and everything to get people to come into stores. Like in North America, you get people with like the turning signs doing yeah, acrobats, or the whatever. flyers. Yeah. Yeah, but they're called promotional girls, and like her friend does say when she when she tells them, "This is no country for women." Yes, that's my favorite line. Yeah, and that encapsulates the whole film when you really look into what the film is actually about, and, and a lot of the metaphors, especially the burning greenhouses, where it cause seems to get glossed over, but then when you look at it, you realize, you know what, it's true. And like, as a woman, I'm like, yep, like you said, you damn it. If you do, damned if you don't. Because she was talking about how men expect women to wear makeup and they cuss them up for it for and they cuss us up for not for wearing makeup and then when we don't, they, they cuss us up for not wearing makeup. And all he's like, there, there's nothing that we can do. The funny thing with that scene is we don't see the build up to how they even got in that conversation. It, it just kind of cuts to that scene and you assume that he's asked for her. I mean, if you, she's been seen and the coworker just kind of goes off on a tangent like, well, you know, she needs to work because she needs money for makeup because we have to look good. And as you said, you know, if we aren't wearing makeup, we get called out for it if we do we get called out for it if we are all covered up then we get called out for it and if we're too revealing we get called out for it and it's also a moment of subtle shame for jong Su because the last time he sees amy he calls her out for being topless because there's a great scene where he jaime and ben are they're smoking a joint she gets a little giggly starts doing this interpretive dance uh, which has a cultural symbolism and also economic symbolism because this film has a lot of layers and she takes off her top even though he's in love with her he doesn't know how to express emotions and basically shames her for for disrobing in front of men and that scene where he's talking to the promotional girl you kind of almost see like a, a subtle gut punch where he realizes yeah i'm part of the problem but also ben is part of the problem because ben is amused by Amy, but he he doesn't really care for her so there's there's a sadness that goes on within her character when she talks a lot about fear of dying alone and isolation there's a story about her being in a well which may or may not have happened the stuff with the cat may or not be there there's a whole lot of things of her existence isn't really fully formed because no one truly sees who she is her, her lack of presence in the film is supposed to be a metaphor of how society treats women. They expect, to, they want us to be there, but then they still don't. Like, there's nothing that we can do that can please them. And, like, for her, she serves as this metaphor for these two men, for, for Jong Su. It's all about sex for him. And, like, he only sees her as a sexual object. Like, the only thoughts that he has of her revolves around their one sexual encounter. And then for, for Ben, she's a plaything. She's just there for his amusement. She's, I liken her to a court jester and the way she performs for him and even for Jung Soo because in the first scene with him is that she, she does pantomime and she talks about, I can, I, I have a Mandarin because I imagine that I have this Mandarin and it's not there, but she's pantomiming and having it. 
And even then she's performing for him. But what she's saying is so very deep for her. She's, as they say, she's kind of transient in the past. She just moves in and out of the story. And then there comes a point where you do miss her. And that's the whole premise of the film. Like women go missing in society all the time. And they go missing for some people, but and then for some people, some people miss them and some people don't. And that's the the saddest thing about the whole film is like she's there and then she's not. She's such a profound character because even thinking back to the miming of the orange, what she learned when it comes to miming is it doesn't matter if the object's there, it's if you believe it. So you don't think of what's not there, but you think of how much you really want it. And so much of her character revolves around the sense of longing, you know, longing for people to notice her, longing to be in a relationship where someone actually loves her for who she is flaws and all but she's also probably the biggest clue in this film that evolves into this great big mystery because she gives she talks about like the great hunger and little hunger and how little hunger is a person is hungry a person doesn't have a meal to eat whereas great hunger is that quest for meaning you know trying to understand what life is and they're all individuals who in many ways are trying to find that greater fulfillment in life even you know when she does her dance she's performing for for people but she's taking it seriously because she understands how when she went to africa and witnessed this dance she understands the true cultural significance to it the the quest for enlightenment where everyone around her doesn't see that it's funny it's not until she goes missing that she really kind of hits you and which makes the line that ben says when they're all just hanging out smoking a joint and he tells jong su that you know sometimes when you get too close to something you don't really see it for what it is or you don't really appreciate it and in many ways i felt like he was telling us the audience that as well and then when she disappears you actually start to feel something but we learn more about her and her life after she's gone because we get glimpses of it but then we actually get to see i guess her mother and her sister that they own a shop and we learn that she has a lot of credit card debt going on but yet she was still decided to go on a trip to africa there's so many layers that we learn about her and that jong su learns about her only after she's gone there's that aspect but then it also exposes the hypocrisy that men have for women seeing where she's doing where after they they smoke the spliff like where she she took her top and she's dancing and she's free and then you have these two men watching her and then like jong su he admonishes her for for dancing but the thing is, is he never even stopped her from taking off the shirt in the first place. He was happy to sit there and watch her. It was only after she stopped dancing for herself that he he decided, okay, well, then my enjoyment has passed. So now I can belittle her for doing this thing that made her happy. But if he had really cared for her, he would have, when the moment she started taking off her shirt, he would have gone to her and say, are you sure about this? Then that's the whole thing with the film. It's all about how men perceive women, right? And how very little women can matter to men once they have received their enjoyment from the women in their lives. Then he played his little cat and mouth game with her, pun fully intended. And as soon as he, he finished his game with her, he discarded her. Jong Su, he only cared about her because he feeling competitive with Ben. Felt insecure and envious of Ben because Ben is what you would call a chibble. Chibble is like this rich heir. That's where he gets his money from. He doesn't work. Where he has this big expensive loft in the middle of Seoul. And there, there's no way you could get out unless you have money and connections. And for, for Jung Soo, like Ben is who he focuses his attention on. And then you wonder if the reason he's looking for Haini is not necessarily because he really cares for her, but it's all about as a way to like get into Ben's space again. Interesting angle on that last part in terms of why he was searching her. I felt that Jung Soo did care for her, but he was one of those individuals that always too late to act. And he let male ego mm-hmm. get in the way because one of the things i found interesting about the jong su character is 
he has a lot of disdain for his father because his father has filled with rage and kind of pushed people away from him. But in many ways, Jung Su is just like his dad. He may not be physically violent, but he he doesn't know how to relate to people. And anytime someone gets close to him, he starts to push him away, as as we see with Hey Me. But it's also interesting that when he's faced with Ben, he immediately steps back because he almost feels like there's an alpha here and I can't take his place. So when he goes to pick up Hey Me from the airport and sees that Ben is with her, he immediately kind of cowers back a bit. And he blows that opportunity when it's time for Hey Me to go home and he doesn't offer to give her a ride, but Ben does. He doesn't have a backbone. It's only after Haimi disappears that he really starts to step up. But is it because Haimi's gone or was it because of Ben? Because he spends so much time looking for the greenhouses. Exactly. You know, he doesn't hear from Haimi, okay, that's fine. But he's going to every greenhouse, checking it out. He almost accidentally burns one himself just to see what it might be like if you held a flame. But he can't go through with it. And, you know, the more I think about it, you're right. He his A lot of his world, once Ben comes in, it revolves around Ben more than it does it does Haimi. Yeah, because he's intimidated by Ben and it's all about his ego. It's about men's ego. And I think he's fascinated by the confidence that Ben has. And then don't forget, the only reason that he even suspected that something may have happened to Haimi is because when he was in a washroom, he like he went snooping in the, the cupboard and he saw the, the drawer with the, with the jewelry. And if he had never done that, would it have ever occurred to him to look for Haimi? I don't think so. The jewelry is an interesting tell early on. But my initial thought was, huh, that's a little odd. And then I was thinking, well, maybe Ben is into jewelry, like could be into like cross-dressing, what have you. But it doesn't get touched on until much later on when after she goes missing. And then you start to think back and you're like, wait a minute, something's not quite right. And I think with Ben, as you said, he's, he's a man of mystery. You don't know exactly how he got his wealth. They... They refer to him as the Great Gatsby, which is interesting because yeah. there's a lot of reference to American literature. And Gatsby is the the wealthy individual, but no one knows where he gets his wealth. And he seems to be happy, but maybe he's not exactly what he seems. But then there's also a lot of reference to William Faulkner. And Faulkner wrote about like the decay of the South by the newcomers. Yeah, new money versus old money. Yeah, and when you think of it with Ben, Ben is new money, and he is taking pleasure in destructing everything that is old and rural you're always aware of ben's money the the classism is at play at every step of this film and that's, that's a very typical thing for a korean cinema because south korean cinema if you watch it a lot, especially a lot of the films from their 2000s and even up to now and it, it even happens a lot in k-dramas they talk about classism and social status and a lot of it is used is reflected towards american ideals like even if you talk about parasite for instance parasite and, and burning are very similar in the fact that they they talk about Western ideals of wealth and class versus South Korean ideals of wealth and class. For instance, in Burning, you, you talk about new money. Sure, at Chibble, she's all about the money passing on to the sons. And the way how classism plays into their relationship. Hey, me is broke. She has credit card debt, but she traveled to Africa. And Ben, he went there just because he could afford to go. To, he has the connections with friends, so someone who can just drop off a Porsche in front of a, a airport just for him. John Su thinks he doesn't have money, but he does. Like, he has property. He doesn't have cash. He's not. He, he's what you would call cash poor, but he's land rich. He he has something that a, that a lot of people would want, like Beijing would say, a piece of the rock. And while he may not be a farmer, he could sell that farm, that farm and make a tidy sum of money for himself, right? But he doesn't see that. He's looking at the, the flashy things that Ben has. He's not looking at the things that have meaning for himself. 
And for Hamie, as she herself is looking for her own purpose and her own wealth, people will look at her and say, well, she only connected with Ben for money. And I don't think that was ever it. I think Ben was intriguing for her. She wanted to travel because she wanted to see the world. She thought he, she maybe perhaps thought that he thought the same thing where he didn't. He was on a hunting ground. Spoiler, Ben is a serial killer. First time I saw the film and I saw that trait, my first thought was like, this is his trophy. And the reason I thought it was as a woman, I looked at the jury and I'm like, all of these juries are of different tastes. I don't wear jury, but if I had jury, a lot of the things I, I own would have a similar feel to them and similar aesthetic. Everything in that drawer is like very different. And I immediately knew, I'm like, he's killing women. And then when he talks about the greenhouses, he's talking about burning women. Like the greenhouses are a symbol for women, a symbol for young women in particular. What is a greenhouse? A greenhouse is a place where you fertilize plants and you, and you bring them up under protected environments so that they can survive moving from the greenhouse into the soil. And he killed these women because he thought that no one would care for them and he sees them as these filthy, dirty things. Talked about the trophies being the immediate call to you that he's a serial killer. Whereas one of the things that I, I thought about outside of the, you know, maybe he's use the fashion was it's his notch on his bedpost this is his the ladies man type of thing the serial killer aspect didn't come to me until just before they get to the house or even maybe when they were at the house and the greenhouse analogy and metaphor is wonderful and especially how it's used in this film because as an audience member when you're watching this discussion if you didn't know by then that ben's a serial killer it clicks in but for jong su he is completely oblivious he doesn't see the world too far outside of what's right in front of him so as you said his father's house is a place i've got to now take care of a place of bad memories where other people look at that and go you've got property like, dude you got property you got money you got land when jong su is starts to stalk ben there's that great scene where he's standing outside ben's condo he's looking up at the the condo and ben is in the exercise room looking down on him you know, there's always that kind of divide, like even when you're chasing after me, I'm still above you. I would say for a film about a serial killer, and this is where, you know, you can look at the difference between Korean filmmaking and North American filmmaking. In a North American film, you would have known from the first frame that there's a serial killer on the loose. You'd hear a report about some woman dying or what have you. This film, the first hour and, uh, and 15 minutes or so, is just building characters. It's just establishing this love triangle of sorts. You know, they, they drop a few hints and then when it hits you, actual movie that you're you're watching, it's a, it's a nice little kind of pull the rug out from under you and things escalate in a way that you don't anticipate. I thought the the payoff was was satisfying. I still don't feel that Jong Su is any better afterwards. He might have a story to tell, but I still feel like his life has has already been ruined. The thing with Jong Su that makes him interesting is that at the end he becomes a killer. And the thing is, is that he took justice into his his own hands. But again, this justice wasn't for Hami. Because if it was, he would have gone to the police with his suspicions. He would have been like, listen, this man has potentially killed other women. He never went to the police. He never he never told her, her family that he was concerned about her. He was just asking these arbitrary questions. He takes matters into his own hand because for him, this becomes personal. It's almost like he wants to become a character in a great American novel. It's all about him seeking vengeance. And, and even at the end, he doesn't even say it. And I'm being super dramatic here where he's, he where he could have said, this is for Haney. I know what you did to her. So stop, stop, stop. He never does that. The fact that you mentioned, it's a film about a circular, it's a psychological thriller. And that's one of the things about this film. This film is very sullen. It's very smart. And it makes you think about a lot of things after you've seen it. Like the cat. I still firmly believe her, Amy did not have a cat. 
<laughs> I know. And no, the reason I say this is because um, the cat never comes off her or for or for Jungkook. The cat becomes its own little metaphor, right? And has no reason to steal the cat. He has Amy's watch. He doesn't need another trophy. He's he's a sociopath. He he doesn't care about living thing. He wouldn't take her cat in for for what reason? It would be a burden to him, right? But I just think that that was just a brilliant piece of storytelling where it makes the viewer um, question their their selves and their doubt in him because then it's like, see how you judge Amy? See, there really was a cat. But I'm like, you see, you, Lee Chandong, you're playing with me because I know there was no cat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and as you said, there's there's a lot of moments in this film where you think, well, did that happen or didn't that happen? I personally feel like there was a cat. The reason... I think so. Is it doesn't come out for for Hamee, but part of that's because every time we see her, the few times we see her in her place, it's with Jungsu. Any other time we get a shot of her apartment, it's only Jungsu alone, and the cat clearly doesn't know Jungsu. I was willing at the end to believe that a cat does exist, and I think part of the reason he took the cat was that there's a moment when. Ben has his new girl. He talks about how Amy told him in one of their last conversations that the only person she really trusted was Jong Soo. And Ben felt jealous by that because even though she's a plaything to Ben, his ego is still, I must be the center of everyone's world. I think he was a little off his game because he even said that, you know, I found this cat and it was actually kind of cute, so I decided to keep it, which led me to believe that he normally doesn't take living trophies. Mm. Also, with the whole male ego that's rampant in this film, Ben talks about, you know, he's amazed at people who can cry and show emotion to, to him life is a big game but then there's this real kind of visceral aspect to him where he feels most alive when he kills but he only gets to do it every two months or so like i can quench that hunger for about a two-month period then i get bored and i must feast again well yeah but the, the whole crazy thing is he's a he's a sociopath right and sociopaths they lack empathy they lack emotion and they see people that have emotions and who are comfortable expressing these emotions as anomalies. For him, when he sees where he sees them talking about emotions and Amy so openly expressing her emotions, he's fascinated by this. And he's fascinated by seeing her do this with someone else and he's and they're talking about their emotions. This is one of the reasons I love Stephen Young's performance. He gets this murk on his face. So fascinating, but you also disgust me. And and this happens again in uh, the dinner party at his house with the new girl. This is where I'm like, Stevie deserves an Oscar nomination for this scene alone because he guesses that where he was like, I can see him killing all of these people while I'm walking out the door like nothing happened. He saw it as a way to mess with Jung Soo. So that's where the psychological part comes in because he's playing a game. He's literally playing a cat and mouse game with Jung Soo and he's messing with him. And when he got bored, he easily walked away. Yeah, and I think he saw Jung Soo as a new challenge that he can overcome. And I agree with you. Stephen Jung is wonderful in this film. He deserved an uh, Oscar nomination for a supporting actor. He deserved nominations in every awards group for this role because I don't think people give him enough credit for just how versatile an actor he is, but he is so good. Um, did you see Minari? Because Minari showed at Sundance. His performance in Minari is so so good. I'm like, people, I can't wait to see what even Yun does. And he's such a good actor. People don't give me, also don't give me enough credit for the work he did in The Walking Dead. He was phenomenal
on the, the walking dead like he made millions here about glenry to the point that when he was killed off we were we were devastated and it's only because we love the character but you miss his performance of this character and as you said he's very versatile because coming from the walking dead and even like with the, that small part he had in okja all these characters are very different and to me saying someone like ben who is very cold one moment but can be give off a very intense aura the neck that's the most tremendous acting and even in those moments where you know he's giving that killer look you could still see why people would still want to be around him. he's got that effortless charm and you know one of my favorite moments and i guess it's the the tell of of ben when he's watching Haley do her dance and when he's listening to the new girl talk about the difference between koreans and american and um, chinese individuals he does this kind of yawn because he's bored he's at the point now where he's like i am ready to dispose mm-hmm. of you but when he sees jong su looking at him he does a kind of charming smile like hey man how's it going you get so much in that little moment and there's a lot of scenes like that when they're smoking the joint and he's basically walking jong Su through how he kills yep. people. Hey, has no family of no no friends. Like he's giving the entire playbook of how he finds and kills these women, but he's doing it in such a charming way that Jong Su is completely clueless. And even though we now know what's going on, you still are fascinated by it. You're still like, man, you are evil. But I kind of want to see where this goes. And that's the thing that I think that Ichan Dong and and his co-writer Oh Jung Mi, who who co-wrote the screenplay. They, they, they use that to show how society cares about women because we are so distracted by his smile, charming, and the way he's telling this story has you in rapture. But he's a monster, but you don't care. It's almost like you, you on Netflix. This man is a psycho. And then there are people on Twitter talking about, oh my God, he's so good looking. And it's the same thing. He said, the police don't care. Their families don't care. The country it, he doesn't care. He said, Korea is a great place for this because the government doesn't care. After that comes the with the friend where she's like, there is no country for women. Playing not only Korea, she means every country in the world is no country for women because society in general doesn't care about women that go missing. The police don't care. The government doesn't care. Politicians don't care. But again, the audience technically also doesn't care because of who's telling the story. They kind of use this one scene to give you like a, a whole lesson on on feminism and ass and politics and and patriarchy and prejudice all in this one little conversation. And and that's one of the reasons I love the film. It's not perfect, as again, as I said, but like if I could, if I could take one moment of the film, it would be that scene. Carolyn, thank you for coming on the show. Where can listeners find you? Um, listeners can find me on my podcast. So here's what happened, and you can find that on the buttwhythepodcast.com. I'm writing on Adam's tickets and a whole site like twelve, and on Saturday nights at ten p.m. Eastern, I do like co-host the Saturday if I like to eat. Yeah, I'm always on Twitter. So I love talking about film and TV and random things. Listeners, you can reach me at smallmind on Twitter or at Changing Reels AC on Twitter. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time.